clubhouse. Um, and one other thing. There is no other thing. It's for my mother. She needs the surgeon files for her book, and I thought maybe you could get them? Welcome to The Surgeon Files, your unofficially official Prodigal Son podcast. I am Mike Caputo. I'm Sheila McGann. And tonight we're talking about episode nine of season two. It's the Adresa-centric episode we've all been waiting for. It's called Killabusters. The Killabusters was written by Sabrina Deanna Roga, who wrote Stranger Beside You and Silent Night from season one. And it was directed by Dermot Downs, who also directed Scheherazade from season one, where we got our introduction to Nicholas Endicott. Oh, I love that. And I think this was the second Scheherazade because I think the Zuckerman sisters uh, wrote Scheherazade and they had they were the writers on last week's episode. Yes, uh, I believe that is correct. And Silent Night, one of my favorites from season one. That was the winter finale episode, the one where Jessica mucks up the works right nice. Oh, yes. Right, where she stands on the porch to stately Whitley Manor and offers a million dollars. For, in the air. Uh, yeah, in the air for, for uh, information <laughs> on the girl in the box, which is funny because... It, this is an, another episode kind of stemming from Jessica making deals that will affect other people's lives. You know, the same way, you know, like agreeing to write this tell-all book is kind of potentially a same version of, you know, getting on the steps and bringing all sorts of attention to the Whitley family. I don't know. I'm not convinced it's not going to backfire in a massive, massive way. Yeah, I'm kind of making like that really awkward face. Like, I don't know if this is such a good idea. At the end of our discussion tonight, make sure you stick around because we've got Keiko Karma Sutures again, uh, joining us again to talk about this very Adresa specific episode. And we go deep on what makes Adresa tick. Uh, Keiko is great as always. It was just a fun interview. She's a, she's a favorite of mine to have around the clubhouse. And our second second timer. We started last week with Frank, and and now we've got Keiko returning this week. So big big stuff happening here at the clubhouse. And before we get started, you should definitely check out our Prodigal Son Spotify playlist that we've created, Surgeon Files, same as this podcast episode name. It's a little bit of mood music to help you through the days in between episode releases. And oh boy, do we have some songs for you this week to add? I, I mean, obviously, the elephant in the room is we got to find out is this song on the playlist now. Oh yeah, baby. Who can who can resist this song and Gil? If you could just see me right now, I'm swaying to the music in my little podcast booth. You'll have to see if it knocks out I Feel Love out of the top spot on the podcast playlist. Ooh, a little competition going on there. The show has very specific musical tastes, and I really, really enjoy it. It's definitely music for a certain a certain demographic. You know, you have all these shows, like especially like your CW shows, the shows that are like uh, made for the the Gen Z and the and the millennials. Nah, Prodigal Son firmly making music and putting music and licensing music for the Gen Xers and all of us. Yes, the nostalgia was nigh with that song. <laughs> uh, guys, I mean, maybe the most important thing of an episode that had a lot of important things 
I don't think we could possibly overlook this shout out from the show. Um, and one other thing. There is no other thing. It's for my mother. She needs the surgeon files for her book, and I thought maybe you could get them. What better product placement for this podcast than to have Malcolm asking Gil for the surgeon files? We all need the surgeon files, not just Jessica. We all need the surgeon files podcast. If I had my way, I would ADR uh, like a really bad impersonation of Tom Paine and just say podcast. So when he says, uh, my mother needs the Surgeon Files podcast and, and just kind of insert it into the episode. Uh, yeah. uh, I, I, I'm fully vouching for the fact that that was a shout out to us. Yeah, for sure. I mean, listen, we've had Sam Slaver. We've had Chris Fedak on. We've had Luma Diamond Phillips. And we haven't had Tom yet, but we're, we're working on it. We're working on it, hopefully. You know, I'm sure it was a coincidence, but I'm taking it as a personal shout out. Endorsement. Nope, it feels like an endorsement. I feel like it was a tongue-in-cheek endorsement of this podcast, and you know what? I'm here for it. That clip now lives on my computer forever, and no one can take it away from me. I think so. we need to have that as the intro to the show this week. Like, you know, uh, instead <laughs> of like welcomes, you know, you know, you know, pod clubhouse. I think we need to have, you know, I need the surgeon files. Uh, that's pretty funny. That's pretty funny. <laughs> But we had a lot of knots this week, besides our little shout out there. We had, you know, daily affirmation. There was no sunshine. There was no Ainsley. But there was plenty of Idrisa. So this was the Idrisa-centric episode that Keiko Agena was mentioned in during Fox's TCA presentation back in early March. And as promised, this one was very Idrisa-centric. And it was it was pretty fantastic on a lot of levels, I think. Yeah, I mean, I love when she gets the room to stretch her legs because, because she's so reliably funny. And she was reliably funny in this episode. When we get more of Idrisa than just punchlines and quips when she has to say a second third fourth line it always pays off well you know there there are few sure bets in the world than giving uh, keiko again more lines to do more room to work with because she has great chemistry with the, this cast she has great chemistry with tom Payne. she had great chemistry with michael luaye uh, as blaze who we learned in our interview she only met at the start of the, this shoot she's funny she's personable she she just makes the show better when she's on so i i was really i really enjoyed this one and we also just got a deepening sense of who she is as a person there was there was a lot of revelations about her past and who she is and who what she feels like in the world so uh anytime that we can get a deepening of who these characters are that we care about so much um i'm, I'm just here for it so we had a lot of that this week too backstory and origin story you're never going to make me a bigger deeper more invested fan than when you give me backstory and origin story and we got we got the most of 29 episodes of the series that we've had this was by far the biggest look inside adresa and and one of the deeper dives into one of the not core characters on the show delved a bit into danny we got a little bit more of actually from her past tonight we really haven't gotten too much jt we really haven't gotten too much gill for as central and core a character as gill is we really haven't uh, gotten a, t a terrible ton of his backstory really but i feel like we have a really good sense of adresa tonight and who she is and what makes her tick uh really well done really well done and a really uh, efficient storytelling i think that they did here tonight speaking of adresa who got a first look at malcolm's murder wall in his apartment tonight uh hit us up with the murder tally this week what, what did you see oh for murder weapons there was a chainsaw and some good old skin branding Blech. <laughs> it takes a certain kind of budding homicidal maniac to carve 
words into someone's skin. It's really one of the grosser body mutilation things that you can do. In so many ways, it bothers me more, like, writing, like, the vulture with a box around it bothers me so much more than actually taking off the head. Because you're seeing, mm-hmm. because you're seeing the writing on the skin, you see the grooves in the skin with it. Not to get terribly graphic here, so early in the episode, but yeah, like a missing head like, is a missing head. It's not like it was spouting blood or anything. You know, it was cauterized, and it's usually pretty quick. Like if you're going to take off a head with a chainsaw. I mean, I haven't personally, but I can imagine it would be very quick. But skin branding that feels like it takes. I swear takes to God. Sheila, you say things on this podcast that if the FBI is not investigating you yet, they will be soon. I am an open book. I have no... I think that's where you're going wrong in your criminal mastermind plan. I think you're a little but too I'm open. But I'm not. I like that. This is my ruse, Michael. I am an open book. I have nothing to hide, and therefore nobody will look at me. I have the most trusting face around. I get told things that nobody should ever tell other people and I keep those secrets. And that is why I am, I am me and nobody's coming knocking at my door anytime soon. That's what she thinks. Uh, (laughs) Warrants are being written as we go. But I imagine that skin branding would take a ton of time more so than anything else, which is also kind of why I found it so disturbing that the, um, the shirt was like on display. It was basically like this theatrical presentation of it. It was it kind of bothered me more than anything. I really like that detail. They've done it a couple times where they've had a killer really make a performance piece out of the murder. It, it was the the episode with the sex dungeon earlier this mm-hmm. season where where it was a clean decapitation and it, it was presented in in, the, in like a the body was presented almost virginally and the head was placed back on the shoulders just so, but it was easily removed. I love the performative murder because. Because what I, I think it's interesting. I think psychologically, I think it's a very interesting detail to include. But I think just as art, just watching it as a visual medium, I think it really heightens every aspect of the murder. I think it really heightens the gruesomeness of the murder. You know, if you had just come up on a body that had a torso that had it written in there, gross, totally, you know, I'm still going to wince. I'm still going to go, Ugh. but it being under a pressed shirt that's buttoned up. So you have to reveal it. Right. You have to like open it like stage curtains. Right. You have, right. You have, right. You have to undress it. Right. You have like a present. You have to unwrap it. It heightens the entire experience in a, in a gross, disgusting kind of visceral way. Switching gears as only you can do when you're talking about Prodigal Son. Maybe it's springtime springing, you know, the birds are singing, little baby animals are being born. Where are you going uh, with this? Buds are are blooming. Uh, But this episode really upped the horny factor Uh, in a a way we rarely see on Prodigal Son. You know, oh, absolutely. We occasionally see Idrissa talk about bondage or or like overtly flirt with Malcolm. You know, we've seen Martin be hot under the collar for Jessica recently for for Vivian, for Dr. Capshaw. But everyone was like horny as fuck in this episode. Yeah, everybody either got some or was on the verge of getting some. Martin is a serial killer locked in a psychiatric hospital and having a thousand times more sex than I am. That (laughs) is a crime. Come on, you know? And and so they're having sex. Uh, You know, Adrice is getting it busy in her kitchen on the floor with the hunky firefighter guy. Danny's like, you know, why are you doing this and throwing me out when, you know, she's about to get some with Malcolm? Like, everyone, everyone, you know, uh, Jessica... And Gil are dancing to Slave for Love in the garage, like like an 80s music video. 
I mean, I needed a cold shower after this episode, I got to tell you. Yes, absolutely. 100%. (laughs) Even Friar Pete was getting in on the action. I yeah, Friar Pete, come on. I mean, I totally appreciate being able to smell the sex on someone afterwards and you know, but you see if you have some manners, you don't talk about it in, in mixed company. Good yeah, lord. It's man. like, you know, the first rule of, you know, sex in the uh mental institutions, you don't talk about it, you know. <laughs> You know, maybe at Claremont, that might actually be the first rule because they are they have such backwards policies on who they hire and and how things are run there. You know, don't what, talk looking, about looking at you, Dr. Potts. Yeah, <laughs> I have sex. Just don't talk about it. That may actually be the first rule of Fight Club at Claremont for sure. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Talk to, talk to me about the music in this episode. So the song that we've been talking about all, all intro here, that Jessica and Gil dance to Slave to Love by Brian Ferry. It, it's a major major power ballad. I'm surprised it's not playing in the background right now as I sway. It really hammered home for me that slavery was a theme this episode. <laughs> so, and then stemming from that, the song that Friar Pete sings at the end of the episode, uh, Were You There When They Crucified My Lord, is a song that's known as a spiritual. So there really isn't like an author credit for this song because it was something that moved off of plantations and into congregations. Um, it's known as a metaphor for slavery in the United States, where Christ knew the suffering of slaves and stood in solidarity you know, with their oppression. In this episode, so you know, taking that metaphor really deep here, like it felt like for everybody in this episode in some way, shape or form was enslaved in some way. Malcolm and his thoughts, Martin in his prison. Vivian in her position, we learned a lot about her origin too. So she's a prisoner, a slave, if you will, to her position and her and her feelings. Adresa with her loneliness. Ashton with his demons. Like I could go on and on, but I'll stop. That's a lot. I mean, that's a lot to unpack. So I don't know if you're if you're feeling where I'm feeling with this or No, I mean I think I think it's a really good pickup. I, I think I think there is a lot of uh slave to your emotions, slave to your brain in a lot of ways. I mean, especially with Adresa and how she feels about friendship and family that she reveals for the first time really in this episode. Malcolm having more Martin hallucinations, you know, his self-conscious manifesting again. Danny opening up and talking about how she was made to feel like she deserved she made herself feel like she deserved her own personal torture that led to her ODing on cocaine when she lost um, you know, her her person in the field. Uh, way back when, you know, the, you know, our brains often enslave us and, and trap us in these loops. Uh, my, and Jessica and Gil, as much as they've tried to move away from each other, you know, like a magnet came flying back towards each other, very literally dance while Slave to Love played in the background in that garage. I mean, what, where was the sound system where Slave to Love was playing that they were dancing to? I don't know. Um, but you know, yeah. So yeah, I, I think you're really hitting something on the head here. And the Vivian scene with Fire Pete and him singing that song and that spiritual, there's a whole other aspect there too. She knows what she's doing is wrong, but again, slave to her emotions, to her reckless impulses. It's almost like she can't help herself. She knows she's headed for trouble. She knows she's headed for disaster. And yet still, not to quote Brokeback Mountain, she can't quit him, uh, it seems. Not Fire Pete Martin. And the reason that we make these connections is why they gave us a shout out in tonight's episode. Uh, yeah. 
Yeah, because everyone needs the surgeon files. Uh, let, let's get into Adrisa. We're bumping Adrisa's corner up to the to the top slot in this episode because this was her episode. I think this was this was very much her episode. Uh, though there were some other good plot lines, but we're not going to go too too much because we really do go deep into this episode and what it means for Adrisa and who she is in our conversation with Keiko. I don't think it's going to strike anyone as unexpected that she has trouble fitting in or making friends or finding family. But did you expect the the specific backstory items that we got tonight? I'm talking about Voodoo Doll at six, Cadaver at seven, research that her parents are doing, that she's an online web sleuth, uh, that she has so many murder boards at home that she could bring them into work. I mean, these were a lot of specific items about Adrisa. Did it overwhelm you to learn so much? What did you think of them? You know, you said it earlier, like anytime there's an origin like I am so here for origin stories because it's just fun then to go back and kind of piece together things and like what makes her tick. So just seeing everything that we saw about her tonight, it wasn't overwhelming. It was good to see because she is such an interesting character. She is such an interesting person. Just from what she's dropped as hints throughout the, the 29 episodes that we've seen of her so far, I, I think it was time for us to get to know Idrisa a little bit more. As far as online web sleuthing and murder boards, I, I, I'm, my hands are moving into the little heart, you know, little symbol. She lives and breathes her passion. And I like seeing that validated. Um I like seeing a little bit of insight into who she is. I, I like the fact that she opened up to Malcolm to say these things, that she has trouble fitting in, that um, her web sleuthing, her online digital gumshoes are like her family because she, you know, she is a little bit of an oddball. And I think that's a good thing. Like, I think it's good to embrace the fact that family comes in all shapes and sizes. Uh, family was a big uh, theme of this episode tonight. Uh, Adresa in how she finds family and how she defines family with the Killabusters, maybe the lack of family feeling she feels with Malcolm and the major crime squad, though she may really strongly want that, but she's not really getting that validation. That was something that we we got into with Keiko. Uh, that's definitely worth a listen. Um, but also Malcolm, you know, later on, and we're not up to that yet, but Malcolm talking about family and how, uh, you know, eventually they give up on you if you don't, if you aren't the person that they expect really telling about him, you know, as, as, as much as we were, we were talking about this episode was a lot about slave to our emotions and slave to our brains, the, the identity of family and how, and how family can be there for you or not be there for you was also a resonating theme in tonight's episode for sure. Adresa's group, The Killabusters, which I think is such a great name, struck me as such a nod to Don't Fuck With Cats from Netflix and Michelle McNamara's book, I'll Be Gone in the Dark. As a true crime junkie, I, ha I love the notion that a group of web sleuths can solve crimes that, you know, end up stumping police. So do you think there's something to Idris's idea that the police don't necessarily have the bandwidth or, or the brains to solve these crimes? I, I mean, I like the idea of a think tank. The larger you can increase your pool of resources and life experiences uh, among intelligent people, I think you're always going to improve your odds for solving the quote unquote unsolvable or the coldest of the cold cases because you get different people from different walks of life who have different approaches to problem. And so they brainstorm and and you get the synthesis of new ideas in a different way when you have the same major crime team looking at the same evidence for a long period of time, 
you you lose the importance of the fresh eyes coming into a case. I think that's something that groups like the Killabusters and Web Sleuths Online in real life in the show really do bring to the table. I think it's a great asset and benefit. And I and I like the idea of law enforcement being open to working with them and taking their ideas seriously, not writing them off as crackpots. But Yes, there is a very big but that comes with that. Yes. Yeah, I, I think there's a fine line there. And this episode kind of demonstrated it. This could have gone and, and did go horribly wrong because I think in a lot of ways, Malcolm handed the keys over over Danny's worry and, and objection, though she didn't press the issue as strongly as she might have. I think I think Malcolm, for whatever his reasons, which we can get into, handed the keys to the case over to them a little too much. And it almost cost Blaze his life. It delayed them capturing Ashton. For other reasons, it also led Malcolm down a bad path of thinking Blaze was the vulture when he wasn't. I think all of those were a result of them being given too much power and them also inserting. I mean, her pulling a bright, you know, I think is part of that problem is that, you know, you insert yourself into the crimes, them breaking into the house. Okay. Well, what if the police needed to sweep that house for evidence that was going to be used in a trial? Those three, you know, uh, web sleuths destroyed that crime scene. It, it, if I'm a defense attorney, I'm going to have my breakfast over the prosecution's head you know, talking about how these vigilantes, you know, destroyed the integrity of the crime scene. How can you trust any of the evidence that was there? Or worse, that they're found at the crime scene. So what happens if they're revisiting the crime? Now they get fingered as being, you know, prime suspects, like wrong place, wrong time when you shouldn't have been there at all. Sure. I care less about them be making themselves accidental suspects than I do you know, Ashton, who turned out to be one of the bad guys, God knows what he did to the crime scene being there. Uh, you know, there, the chain of evidence and, and, and being able to take stock of a crime scene. There's a reason why you have like all those little cones with numbers and the pictures. There's a reason why those crime scenes are so well swept and maintained when you have vigilantes going tromping through there without a, a view to the prosecution of a case, it's, you know, it's, it's not enough to capture the bad guy. You have to be able to prosecute the bad guy and you're destroying the crime scene and the integrity of any evidence that you're going to find there when, when you have these people going through there. It, 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 that's just a practical issue with having web sleuths become so involved in the case. So, yeah, there's definitely a difference between being, you know, in the comfort of my living room or my bed investigating this and donating my hundreds or thousands of hours to this case. But it's another thing to take on the role of a criminal investigator. Like, that's definitely crossing a line from, I'm not going to say fantasy, but from effectiveness into now you're, now you're in over your head. You're, this is not where your purview is this is not where your expertise lies you've you've gone from asset to hindrance uh at, at a certain yes, point thank and, you that's where i was trying to go with and that. the killer do that in this episode they go from being asset to hindrance and potential liabilities if this was like a law and order episode instead of a prodigal son episode they would have gone into the procedural nightmare that these guys created uh by inserting themselves so heavily into the case but as an idea i love the think tank idea i like group think i think you do allow yourself to get good 
good ideas and brainstorming on tough situations that have stumped a small group of people when you open it up to different worldviews and experiences, for sure. Right, you get all those fresh eyes, you get all that free manpower, woman power. When Malcolm goes to Idris's apartment for the first time, he's actively looking at everything, profiling her, uh, profiling the apartment. I was so focused on the mailer that they found in the garbage. I didn't really stop to take a look other than noticing that there were several more murder boards in the apartment. Did, did anything in her apartment stand out to you significant? There was uh, several more, more murder boards. I think there was like two more that I kind of saw. I did pause a little bit on the uh, screener just to see the different segments of her apartment. Yeah, I noticed that it, what I imagined Idris's apartment to be, a reflection of her mind. There are sections of her apartment that were bright and cheery and sunny. There are paintings that had, you know, different colors. There was like a fuchsia, like an orange painting, a yellow painting. It was brightly lit. So that was like the cheery side of Idrissa. It was also very busy. There was a lot going on, especially in the room that had the murder boards, which was like her living room slash office. There was a lot of books behind where the murder boards were. There were a lot of little tchotchkes on her desk. There was just a lot going on. Nothing really kind of stood out in terms of like, you know, an item or things. But, you know, Malcolm was just scanning the room and the look on his face was just like, wow. There's a lot here. There was nothing specifically revelatory about it, but I just liked seeing this space that Idrissa inhabits. I liked it because of the loft atmosphere, like a large space. It actually, in some ways, reminded me of Malcolm's apartment. It reminded me of Malcolm's apartment as if Malcolm wasn't so fastidious and neat, it, which I think is a reflection of both of their personalities. I think these are two people who have very busy brains chock full of things. Adrisa has less of a filter on the items in her brain, which manifests itself in a very crowded apartment, but in a large space with a lot of stuff taking up and, and everything being seen. Like she's not hiding things. She has everything out in this very crowded apartment. I think Malcolm, also a very busy brain, lives in a large open space like his loft apartment, but he has a brain wired for secrecy and keeping things under tight lids in tight cabinets in tight boxes. And so you don't see a lot of mess in his apartment. Not that it's not there, but it's very much under lock and key. So I thought it was actually a really nice comparison of how these two live and, and how it's a reflection of their brain and how they present themselves to the world. I also like how she opens up his fridge when she eventually makes her way to his apartment for the first time and says that is the fridge of a very sad person. It made me laugh out loud. So. <laughs> it was the fridge of a very sad person. There was like olives and like, I don't know. I mean, my fridge looks very similar Pellegrino. to my, my fridge every several times a month looks exactly like that fridge. A couple of bottles of water, a very old ketchup and really nothing else and expired cheese. And that's basically the contents of my fridge on any given time. And I don't think I'm very sad, but maybe I am. Well, the fridge is maybe one just reflection of one very small part of people. I don't know. But uh, she fixes it right away. She goes, we'll get takeout. And so Idrisa drops this very offhand line to Malcolm being jealous of her time with Blaze. Do you think this is imagined or is there some jealousy related aspect to Malcolm focusing on Blaze? Versus, say, the real guy, the real bad guy, Ashton. I, I thought about this a lot. And I because I was curious because I don't think Malcolm has romantic affection for Adresa. Certainly not the way she has for him. 
But I do think he sees Adresa kind of as his kindred spirit, spirit more than anyone else's. And I think it's kind of revelatory for Malcolm that there is this whole other side to her life of people that are like her and that think she's cool and that look up to her in the way that maybe she looks up to him. And I think that does throw him for a loop. I think it does affect his profile. I think... Uh, unconsciously, maybe more as a protective friend, maybe even more as a big brother versus sexually or romantically. I think he does focus on Blaze as the suspect because of the attention that she's getting from Blaze. Because think about the scene where him and Danny are in the, the HQ room uh their workroom and and they come around to Blaze. It ends with him specifically saying, and he's on a date with Adresa right now. You know, that which is the scene where she's telling him that, you know, I bite, you know, so why would Malcolm know that necessarily? It, it You know, it's almost like the whole profile leading up to and she is out on a date with him right now. It was about the fact that he was thinking about that Blaze and Adresa were out on a date. And so all of the pieces kind of fell in together because you could apply almost all of the same pieces that he links to Blaze as to Ashton. And in fact, that's what they end up having to do when they realize that they got the wrong guy initially. Yeah. So I think it definitely does affect him. I don't think he would ever admit it. I don't know how consciously he's working on that level here, but I think it definitely did affect him. How about you? Am I, am I, am I making too much out of, out of a molehill here? No, I think there's something to his focus on Blaze because I was wondering again, I'm like, you know, I came back to this. I'm like, how how are his profile skills this episode? I'm like, they were spot on. They were just on the wrong guy. And that's where I was kind of coming at this wondering because it's like he had everything right. He just didn't have the right guy. And I was thinking maybe there was this like blinder on that, you know, Idrissa, and I agree with you 100%. Like, he doesn't have a sexual connection to Adresa, but there is this similarity. They are of a like ilk, if you will. Like, the two of them are very similar. They're kind of oddballs. They they kind of, they don't necessarily fit in the same way, but they are very respected for what they do. So there is this connection between them. And I think genuinely, like, they just get along very well. So I, I think that it was maybe an unconscious bias towards Blaze. That's a very good way. Unconscious bias is exactly the phrase I was looking for. Thank you. You are welcome. That's what. That's why you pay me the big bucks here. <laughs> but I just feel that, yeah, I think the I think the profile was spot on. So, like, kudos to Malcolm for you know being a hundred percent. But I just think that that bias in his mind of maybe focusing on Adresa and like her being sort of like the one in the spotlight, I think is very jarring because she's not necessarily the one to be like the star of the show where, you know, there was this very almost starstruck kind of quality to Blaze's reaction to her. So yeah, I think there was definitely a level of jealousy, but not in the traditional sense. Did it surprise you that Adresa, this woman of science, this medical examiner, follows her horoscope or do you think that maybe she just happens to see she she reads her horoscope lightly and just sees us on the days where maybe her cosmically sanctioned romance is mentioned <laughs> um yeah i i don't necessarily feel that the the common sense adresa would be following her horoscope but i think maybe lonely not fitting in, wanting to have a partner, wanting to have a connection, Adresa might be looking for the cosmically sanctioned romance. I agree. I agree. I think she's desperate for human connection on that next level. 
you know, I think the Killabust is up until meeting Blaze, Mr. July, in how funny is that too? He's a firefighter, right? Firefighter <laughs> calendars and stuff. And so he goes yeah. by Mr. July. Very, very funny. Uh, and big shout out to Michael Luaye. I, I'm a big fan of his. He he really made national news because he took over uh, in Hamilton as as Hamilton for a bit back in like I think 2017 or 18 before the pandemic. No BC Broadway. before COVID. Yeah, before because obviously there's been no Hamilton shows during COVID. But I know him actually from his work in TV. You know, I was a fan of his on The Gifted, uh, another Fox show. Uh, he played Erg. He did a really quick stint on The Magicians as Hades, but very memorable. And I always wished that they came back to his character more um, and he was one of the leads in the uh, short-lived NBC series uh, uh, Bluff City Law uh, where I think he played oh. Tony yeah it, he was he was like the one of the leads there with uh, Jimmy Smith's but yeah, I'm a big fan of his. I think he is a very charismatic personality. I think he holds the camera really, really well. He's he's a big personality that I mean, Keiko says we're not going to see him again in season two. But if that relationship continues, I do hope we get him back in season three in some kind of recurring capacity. Because he's a guy who definitely doesn't get to work nearly as much as he should, because I think he's fantastic. I agree. I thought he was fantastic on screen with Idrissa. We get another visit from Martin the Hallucination tonight. Uh, this manifestation <laughs> of Malcolm's self-conscious that was last seen while he lay dying in the elevator shaft, you know, as several episodes ago. Uh, with all of the Martin is still thinking about breaking out of Claremont talk lately, that we've been having that has been happening on the message boards and everywhere else on the internet. Do you think there's something significant to Martin appearing in this hallucination tonight in his Claremont gear? I feel like when he appears to Malcolm in these hallucinations, he tends to be wearing something else other than his Claremont cardigan. I, I presume this is how he's going to look when he does break out. I, you know, I didn't really think about the, the outfit that Martin was wearing when he appears in these hallucinations. I'm not sure what else we've seen him in other than like the flashback to like where he's wearing the red sweater when he got arrested. I feel like when he's in the hallucination with the elevator, the elevator shaft episode, I feel like he is wearing normal people clothes in that episode while he's going from crime scene to crime. Because remember, he's not a Claremont patient or inmate that's in that episode. Right. Oh, that's right. And yes, because he was like, you know, pouring out of the swan crystal jug whatever it was because but, they go to visit it, it turns out to be crazy gill wearing the cardigan and the big beard yeah i i mean i'd have to go back and look at it but i think he's wearing like normal people street clothes i think you're that. right because then gill turns up wearing the claremont cardigan instead of the turtleneck so i think when martin breaks out i'm gonna go when martin breaks out <laughs> that he's gonna find some spiffy new gear i feel like because he he had the motorcycle jacket when he had the opportunity a couple of episodes ago and when they got to the basement he somehow found like this motorcycle jacket uh, um, a jacket not dissimilar to Adrice's sweet pleather jacket that pleather she was jacket, wearing yes. uh, tonight, um, which I thought ooh, she that's a nice nod. Again. This is why they pay us, you know, to do the Surgeon Files, you know, giving us shout outs in the show. But no, I think if Martin breaks out, I think he's going to have enough of an accomplice at this point that he's going to get some spiffy news duds. It struck me, thinking about this, I think what made me think about this line of questioning was the idea that when Martin does inevitably break out, and I, and I really think that's a far gone conclusion at this point, he's going to appear to Malcolm. He's going to pop up in Malcolm's apartment somehow. Malcolm's going to see him and think he's hallucinating again, which made me really laugh when I thought about it. Like, it, like I got a good chuckle at the thought experiment that he's going to... Like, 
He's going to throw, like, frozen peas. It'll coincide with him getting bonked on the head or something again. He's going to throw, like, frozen peas, and it's actually going to hit, like, corporeal real Martin. Like, ow! I don't know. It was kind of like when, uh, like, Thor throws, like, a brick at Loki in Ragnarok, in Thor Ragnarok, and then misses him once, but then hits him another time. I'm there. sorry. I have just been chuckling to myself this whole time. Hey. Oh, We've asked God. you not to drink before doing these podcasts. I, I no, 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 no. I don't drink before these. I drink heavily after. Uh, <laughs> no, but I mean, like, this is a really good point that you make because obviously, breakout is on his mind in in many ways, and he's he's a complex enough character that you and I keep track on the fact that he still has the shank and he still has the two of the three cards. Possibly, Doctor Capshaw might have one of the two remaining cards that he needs to break out right so he still has that and he has you know he keeps bringing up this notion of like hey when i break out but this notion that like he's also appearing as malcolm's subconscious is a very interesting point because at some point i feel like the man is going to be standing in front of him because he's like my boy look what i've done and malcolm's going to be like why are you doing this to me and he's going to still be there and it's just going to be very much of a shock to malcolm's system so i was laughing because of you know the throwing of the peas in corporeal form because Malcolm is dismissing him as a hallucination when he gets bonked on the head and it's happened twice now so yeah there there could definitely be a moment where Martin is physically standing in front of him and, and Malcolm's just gonna be like you're not real oh but I am boy yeah so. exactly and you know and it's just as likely that real Martin may say something like whoopsies you know if Malcolm says something wrong like he does in, in hallucination form today it made me really happy and laughed out loud when I thought about it but man it's gonna really fuck with Malcolm when that eventually comes to pass and, and I'm not even saying maybe come to pass I really think it's gonna happen and that is exactly 100% the first destination that Martin is gonna have he's gonna go to Malcolm because Malcolm has proven that he can keep secrets he can be trusted malcolm is the most most emotionally distressed of the whitleys but he's also proven that under stress under the gun quite literally he's able to perform so i feel that martin would lean on malcolm when he does break out of claremont i know that you had talked about this very early on in the season and i am definitely on board with this theory there's too much that's happened to make me you know definitely believe that this is like a subplot or at least a subcontext in martin's mind and malcolm will be the first stop on his uh his magical mystery tour so i i love the fact that you called him martin the hallucination so i'm going to keep using that because i keep saying i, I realize why well, I, I keep saying self-conscious actually i mean subconscious and i don't know why i keep saying self-conscious obviously i mean subconscious just people listening yelling at your thing i mean subconscious whenever i say his self-conscious i don't know why it's been a long day um but martin hallucination martin the hallucination is is more fun anyway so let's just go with martin the hallucination absolutely so martin the hallucination he's still preaching to malcolm to come clean to danny insisting that she's different than everyone else did it seem like malcolm was more receptive to martin the hallucination this time around it was one of those things where his subconscious really came at him at kind of a crucial time because he's having a problem with Nat's death, you know, plunging. Though, to be fair, he tried to help her, and I disagree with him here. I think he's remembering things wrong from how they actually happened. He really did try to save her. She's the one who chose to fire her gun at him and causing herself to fall and, and impale herself on the anchor spike. Pause. She's the one who paused and she wanted to, you know, make it harder. Yeah, really. I mean, I think he did everything he really could have there. So I think he is being unfairly hard on himself, which is what I think 
Danny and Gil in real life are saying. And I think that's what Martin the Hallucination is saying also. But I think because he's at this low point, because he is blaming himself, I think he is receptive to the idea of I need to talk to someone. And the elevator shaft experience and, and what he went through with Hallucination Danny and then real life Danny, you know, was I any different? And, and you know, it's saying that, she was but in like a good way kind of thing you know you're never boring oh, that whole that whole fantastic chemistry there in when they're at the the plastic right the plastic surgeon and talking about how you know she's so gorgeous like she never you know she should never feel like she's not pretty enough no matter what the plastic surgeons would say kind of thing all of that like that's all that is all part of now Malcolm's equation about Danny and about this relationship. And I think the show has done such a good job of putting them together, really building a friendship, building a friendship, building a trust uh, and a relationship that way that is very organically leading to romantic feelings. Malcolm is having a problem fighting that realization now. And one of the key things about when you love someone, when you want to be in a relationship with someone is sharing the good and the bad and, and, and being able to confess to them, be, you know, knowing that they're not going to judge you, that they're going to hug you and accept you for who you are on your worst days. Malcolm needs that. And he knows he needs that. His subconscious is telling him he needs that. And if not Danny, who? And so I think it does have to be Danny. So I, I think he absolutely was more receptive to it. And I think that's why he does his uh, Nicholas Freudian slip. I think that's where he is going with what if you don't really know the real me? And he that was all him teeing up, I think, getting ready to confess. And, and it, once he confesses, once that dam breaks a little bit, I think it's going to break a hole. I think it's going to be everything about the Endicott affair, not just how things wound up with Natalie that she, that Danny and no one else knows. I think, cause I think he won't be able to stop himself. Once, once that, once that train starts running down the tracks, I don't think he's going to be able to stop his confessional, confessional soul. How about you? Yeah, I, I, I agree. I'm also conflicted because at the end of the track, Danny is still a detective and she's still employed by the New York city, you know, police department. And if he does do what he's about to do, I mean, it was he was very close to, you know, unloading everything on her. I'm just wondering how she would react to that. I, I just don't my, my my TV watching self can't predict where that was that was going to go or how she's going to react when she finds out. Well, I think that's a good question, though. Do, is subconscious Malcolm, uh, Mar Martin, the hallucination keeps saying that she's different than everyone else, presumably meaning she's going to react to who Malcolm really is and what Malcolm has really done differently than like, say, Gil. But is that true? Is she, I mean, you're raising a good point. She is still a detective in the NYPD. She is still devoted to her job and catching bad guys uh, the same way Gil is. And Gil was talking about with Alan Cumming with uh, Simon Hoxley last episode about how I want to be there when we catch the guy who killed Nicholas Endicott. Like these guys want to put bad people away. And Malcolm, well, not really Malcolm, but Malcolm's still in this mindset of taking the fall for Ainsley for the murder, but certainly is responsible for the cutting up and dismemberment of Nicholas Endicott and shipping him to Estonia. You know, the, the, the proximate cause of everyone in the distribution chain that moved Nicholas across the, to the seas. The reason that is that all of that really is at Malcolm's feet. 
And so, yeah, I think that's a good question. Is she, what do you think? Does she react differently? Does she feel strongly enough for him that she tries to bury it or help him bury it? Or does she, you know, send him to the slammer? I don't think Danny is going to send him to the slammer. I like, I just like the way that comes out. I don't think that that's consistent with who she is. I think she's going to struggle to reconcile what this entails. I feel that if Malcolm doesn't get this out to someone who's not named Whitley, he's going to crack. We saw the tremors. The tremors are coming back again. Like we saw them a little bit last episode. We saw them again tonight when he was talking about this. I'm not sure how she's going to react, but I don't think her first reaction is going to be to slap handcuffs on him. And I think that leaves the door open enough to maybe have a conversation about it. I don't know. I, I want to believe that. I, I like these two so much together. I like the idea of Brightwell. I'm a shipper of it. So, but I, I honestly don't know. I mean, the show, the show subverts expectations so well and so frequently. I really am hesitant to to lay money on the reaction there. But but that leaves me really excited though for how it's going to play out. And again, the same way I feel like Martin is inevitably going to break out of Claremont. The Nicholas Endicott secret. Malcolm's secret is going to come out to Danny. I think this was a tip of the iceberg that he's not going to be able to put back in a box. And I just mix like three metaphors there. But you know what? I'm standing by. And you brought back the girl in the box. (laughs) Always, always about the girl in the box. Uh, Let's switch to the family theme here, because Malcolm in talking Ashton down and trying to de-escalate him has this great scene, uh, this great dialogue about family. Let's listen. Family will only go so far. Because once they know the truth, who they're really after, they'll give up on you. And no more family. No, she'll never let me go. Now, Malcolm's doing that classic thing where he's talking to the perp in a sympathetic way and making you feel sympathetic for the perp in a way. I mean, we saw this in the episode with the plastic surgeon where he has that great kind of double entendre dialogue. Uh, Yeah, so he's talking about himself also. So my question for you is, does this clip reveal Malcolm's biggest fear about losing his family and losing people like Gil and Danny if they knew the quote-unquote real him? This is one I struggled with because his family knows what he's done, right? So Jessica and Ainsley know what he's done. And they don't really know what he did to get Endicott across the seas. They don't really know the grisly details. I think Martin is the only one who really knows. And and while Jessica knows he helped cover up Ainsley's killing of Nicholas Endicott, I, I think there's another level there of I sat over him and dismembered him with a bone saw in your living room. That's a level of what I really did that I don't think they actually do know. And I I can see where he's a little bit worried about that. Right now, he's a knight and he's a knight, a white knight for them, saving his little sister uh, by by covering up what she did. The actual details, though, I could see where he'd be worried that that would be a, a whole other thing. So that's actually really interesting, because if they haven't really pressed on the details of what that looked like for him, then maybe, yeah, then maybe he is terrified that if they find out what he did and who he really can be, not that who he really is, I I think he's a a complex enough person that he's going to have different facets to his personality. But the fact that he's capable of that 
it might drive a wedge. You know, Martin leaning full into that my boy stance. But also, I think that, yeah, if, if Danny and Gil knew the real him, that, that that would just be the end of a lot of things for him. But I also took it in a different way that maybe this is him saying that, like, you know, Ainsley, that if she's she's done a lot to him this season where he's he's getting to the point where I don't think he can forgive her anymore. So like he's he knows what she's really about and he's seeing what she's doing. And maybe that was him also out loud verbalizing the fact that he's he's losing his control on things. He's losing his control on his family. And also, if he lets his secret out to a Danny, to a Gil, he loses that family, too. I think this monologue is specifically right, because this is after he's had his Martin hallucination. So I think he's really actively thinking about losing Danny here. I don't even think he's thinking really about Gil. I think he's thinking about Danny and what he's he's doing a cost benefit analysis in his head of what telling her the truth and unburdening his soul costs him in terms of that relationship that I think he cherishes. And I think he cherishes more than maybe he even realizes he cherishes and is increasingly attached to. So I think he's doing a cost benefit analysis in his head while he's talking to Ashton here. Um, But I, I, to your point about Ainsley, I actually don't think he is at a point of where he can't forgive Ainsley. I think he is increasingly unnerved by what Ainsley can do or may do. The thrill of the kill, that aspect of being a serial killer. I think, I think he sees that aspect of Martin in his sister. I think that's his biggest concern about Ainsley. I, I, I don't really think it's so much about forgiving her because again, so much of why she is the way she is is because the truth was withheld from her. Uh, And I think he sees that now a little bit. But I think his pressing concern with Ainsley is much more worry and fear of her. I think he is worried about her being uh, the profiler in profiler in him, especially, is worried about the budding homicidal maniac serial killer that she may be, sociopath that she may be. I think that's his really pressing concern for Ainsley. Um, I want to see more of them because we really haven't seen these two alone together since she revealed that it was a pig blood trick and he and he broke down crying about what he's done. We really haven't seen them alone together. And I kind of want to get back to that before the end of the season. I hope we get back to that before the end of the season. And I feel that that isolation is intentional at this point. With four episodes left to go after tonight, I think we're starting we're going to start getting our pieces into the final chessboard places where they need to be for episodes, you know, 12 and 13. And I think Ainsley not being in tonight's episode is very much a part of that to, to give some cooling off period uh, time so that when she comes back, it's going to be in a really dramatic way with her relationship with, uh, with Malcolm. Since we already brought up Danny a bunch, I want to, I want to skip Martin for now and come back to them. Let's, let's go right to Danny because I think her storylines this week very much dovetail with what Malcolm was going through. The, of course, she has that big scene where she opens up to Malcolm in the car, um, which I want to play right now when I'm calling the face your trauma scene. Cocaine helped not feeling, not thinking until I OD'd. And when everything went dark, all I could think was, I deserve this. I'm sorry. I don't want your sympathy, right? I want you to listen to me. Trauma doesn't just disappear because you want it to. You have to face it. You don't have to face it alone. 
man, that scene, just like when the show gives Keiko room to breathe, she always brings home the bacon and really just scores. When this show gives Aurora, like, room to, to just, like, go free with Danny, she never disappoints and always, always, always makes you feel something. She's she's so good. This The bench on this show is so, so deep. I feel that way about all of them with Frank and with uh, Lou Diamond Phillips. Whenever they give them room to really talk, I mean, we talked about it with Frank, the scene where he talks about uh, with O'Malley and the, the poison you feel, I won't let it poison me too. Like, all of that. When they give them room to run... This man, this this cast is so good and so talented. Just listening to that clip again gave me a little goosebumps. Here's my problem. Here's my problem with her opening up to him that way. Here's my problem with her pressing him at the end when she starts to throw her out. And, and she says, what are you doing? Like, why are you being this way? All of that. I'm bothered by it, Sheila, because Gil tells Danny at the beginning of this episode to check on the Malcolm to, to to almost essentially use their relationship and exploit it to get him, Malcolm, to open up to Danny about what's going on because Gil knows there's something going on with Malcolm. That bothers me because now when she opens up to him in the car here, at the end of the episode where, you know, they're on the verge of kissing, it makes me question the sincerity of everything she's doing now. Is she just being a really effective cop here? Or is this sincere? I don't know. I feel like Gil telling her to do this kind of poisoned the well a little bit. Well, when you frame it like that, it doesn't sound very good. But I think Gil was also coming from a place of true sincerity and true care about Malcolm. And knowing that Danny's been through this, losing someone in the field, struggling with it in ways. And also just the fact that they do have a closer relationship than currently Malcolm and Gil have. I, I don't know if I feel that it's, it's exploitative. I feel like it's coming from a good place. I don't necessarily think it's disingenuous because the feelings that Danny feels about what happened to her person in the field, Kayla, she names her, she humanizes her when she was ODing, like that was what was going through her mind. I feel that's all real. I don't necessarily feel like it's, a, it's coming from a place where they want something bad. They want the Malcolm to crack. I don't think that that is where that comes from. I think for Danny, I don't necessarily think that that level of connection or bonding comes as easily to her as maybe it does to Gil. And I think this was also a way for Gil to mentor her a little bit, to be like, here, this is what, when you see something like this, this is what, you know, we should do. We should, you know, we should reach out. You know, he's not saying this in so many words, but like, that's the intent behind what he's looking for, I think, with her. I, I don't doubt that there is a, a scenario where she opens up to him and talks to him and really like grabs his hand and looks deep into his eyes in a sincere way. I think their relationship this whole season has been building towards this kind of moment. As a third party observer looking down upon these characters going about their day, there's something that makes me like turn my face up a little bit, knowing that she was prompted to do this because of the conversation with Gil, which she doesn't want to do, which she pushes back on. I feel like it's it's something she would have done anyway. She always, always asking, always trying to find out and try and get inside Malcolm a little bit more and get him to open up out of, I think, sincere affection and concern for this man who's her friend. Romantic feelings aside, 
knowing he is troubled and feeling like she has also come from a, a troubled place. And so they can be kindred spirits. I think all of that is true. It takes on a different form, though, when in the back of her head and somewhere in the back of her head is Gil saying, do this. And Gil is her boss and they are detectives. And there there is something in there where it's like an assignment almost to do this versus how what I think she would have done on her own anyway. I didn't like it. It made me feel icky. It made me feel icky because I think it's something that she could have gotten to and would have gotten to anyway on her own. So you feel that like whatever he says needs to be reported back now? In a bit, in a bit. And, and yeah, because I don't think, you know, getting thrown out of the apartment after mentioning Nicholas, I don't think Danny's going to just move off from that. I, I, and, and if Gil comes back around to her, hey, have you learned anything about Malcolm? Yeah, I think she's may feel like a duty to be like, yeah, we had this really weird moment where we almost kissed. Maybe she doesn't say that part. But then he mentions a Nicholas instead of a Nat and then threw me out of his apartment after even though everything was going fine and we were having a very nice time. Yeah, because that's sketchy as fuck. And I think that's going to that's the kind of if she's going to report something back to Gil, that's the kind of thing she's going to report. Like, there's something wrong with Malcolm here because A, Gil told her to look into Malcolm and B, Malcolm lost his shit and almost broke down to her. Those two things are going to equal questions starting to be asked. People looking into what maybe really happened here, whether it's Gil, whether it's Danny, whether it's both of them. There's this is all going to lead to questions being asked that the Whitleys and Malcolm don't want to be asked. That's my feeling. And that's my worry. That's a very valid point. Like the fact that Gil kind of gave it to her as an assignment is not something I kind of considered, but um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure like how I feel about that now. I'm a, I'm a little, I'm, I'm kind of headed to an icky place with it too. Well, especially after Gil kind of ignores Malcolm and his well-being all season, he reintroduces himself into Malcolm's life and worrying about him by assigning Danny, uh, by giving Danny an assignment to essentially get close to Malcolm and get him to open up about what's bothering him. It almost feels like an abuse of that relationship that Gil had kind of surrendered a little bit. And and now because he knows that there's something up with Malcolm and whenever there's something up with Malcolm, there's usually a body trail or something very bad behind it. You know, he doesn't get moody over a bad horoscope, Malcolm. You know, Malcolm only acts weird when bad shit is happening around him and he's not talking about it. Gil knows that. Again, Gil didn't go to Malcolm. You know, season one, Gil would be pressing Malcolm himself. He wouldn't be using Danny as a mouthpiece to try and get that information. The whole thing makes me feel very icky, almost like Gil is working a sting on Malcolm. Maybe Gil doesn't accept Simon Hoxley's resolution of Nicholas Endicott's murder as as easily as we thought. Maybe, maybe, mm, maybe. Nah. He, I, I don't know. I don't. But that's the problem. When he gives Danny this assignment or this thing that can be perceived as assignment. Now, all of these motives. Now I start questioning everyone's motives. And I don't like that feeling. I don't want to think that. But here we are. I wasn't getting that from Gil. I was getting more like the the father figure. Gil from season one was was turning back randomly after nine episodes. Now we're going to go back into that mood where 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 he specifically wasn't acting that way. The first eight episodes? No, I feel like there's been a thaw with Gil that happened. You know, I, I guess he's kind of giving up the, the Whitley ghost, thinking that they're cursed. He turns back to Jessica. I think he turns back to Malcolm. I think he's 
he's had enough time to think and he's thinking about what's important to him. So I, I, I don't disagree with any of that. Then I also disagree with it because they because this door has been opened. Why? Why did he have to go tell Danny to go do this? Why? Why? Because now it makes me question everything. You know, I don't know that Santa's real. Like, what the fuck is happening? Like, I, I'm questioning everything now because he has this icky moment. Now, to his credit, when Malcolm comes in and is like, what are you guys talking about? He he hesitates. He thinks about lying. And then he says, we're talking about you. So that gives me that makes me feel better that he was honest. I would be freaking the fuck out. It would have been the lead item tonight had he lied to Malcolm, because I think that would have confirmed all of my worst fears that he's like looking at Malcolm like a suspect or something that needs to be solved versus just fatherly concern. But I'm very bothered that he gave his mentee. Right. They've established that Danny is a mentee of Gills going back to the beginning episodes when he's in the hospital and then in rehab. Uh, and and now he's kind of given her an assignment. And, and I don't like it. I don't don't like it. It makes me feel very icky. I hope I'm wrong. Maybe I'm probably wrong. But there's an ickiness now when these people have an interaction that makes me question everything. Are you being sincere? Was there really a Kayla? Or are you just a very good detective and you're trying to manipulate the this man? Tear. I mean, she had a tear. You Okay, wait a second. Do you need a hug or something? Because like I'm usually the really cynical one and you're usually the one talking me back from the ledge going, ah, you're crazy. No, no, not <laughs> at all. But, but I, I think it's I, I think it's a really gets a wrench that is now in the works that you have to at least look at and consider. Before we get to Martin and then we get to our interview with Keiko, after Malcolm throws Danny out of his apartment, he turns back to the hallucination and he yells, why are you ruining this? And now the Martin, Martin, the hallucination has disappeared by that point, as Martin, the hallucination is wont to do. Why are you ruining this? What does that mean? Is he talking specifically about his life? Is he specifically talking about his relationship with Danny, the possibility that there was a kiss there and a romantic side? What is he blaming his subconscious for trying to ruin? I think in that moment, it was the possibility of what could have happened with Danny. He was about to open up to her there was this this moment between them this electricity that was happening like i was like on the edge of my seat going is this gonna happen finally and then the whoopsie happened right yeah so i think it was in that moment it meant that but on the larger scale i think martin the hallucination is literally like just there just to, to irritate malcolm just to remind him that there's so many bad things that <laughs> that martin can manifest for him but i think in that moment martin the hallucination was really just for that moment what about you? Uh, I think I think he was I think he was yelling at ruining the romantic aspect of that, that he's so in his head and has placed this idea that he has to open up his secrets to Danny, that it's ruining his otherwise based in lies relationship with Danny in a way. You know, the the the, the prospect of being with Danny based on the version of Malcolm she knows versus the version of Malcolm that really is. That's what I think he's yelling at his subconscious for trying to ruin. Let me be happy with her based on the fantasy version of me that she knows that I've presented to her versus the, the guy who cuts up body parts and sends them to Estonia that I almost accidentally just told her. I think, I think it's one of those things where his subconscious literally got in his head, as funny as that sounds. I don't know. It's going to be interesting. I think this is one of those things that is going to begin to escalate uh, in the same way. I think Ainsley is going to come roaring back. I think I think Danny Malcolm and the truth, capital T, capital T, is uh, is going to be one of these hot button items that we're going to see a lot in these final four episodes, or at least I hope. 
So let's head over to Claremont because there was a lot of as much as there was a Dresa stuff in this episode and as much as there was Danny Malcolm stuff in this episode. I don't think you can downplay how much movement there was in Martin and Vivian Capshaw tonight. The episode starts with uh, Martin seeing Vivian for the first time, presumably since she was in his room kissing him. And he does this adorable thing where he kind of like slicks down his hair and he, he looks like a uh, like a boy who's like seeing his teacher who he has a crush on for the first time kind of thing. Like, I just want to look, I want to look handsome for her. Uh, How cute is that for one thing, but right away it goes from cute into kind of like hypersexual. And they have this great conversation in this, in this scene about lack of judgment and, and how good times can result from it. Let me play this clip. Oh, Dr. Capshaw. Not now. I just have a, I said not now. Vivian. Please. Don't call me that. Sorry, but I cannot stop thinking about the other night. Neither can I. It was a mistake. I never should have. It was a colossal lack in judgment. Well, most good things are. Look, I've made bad decisions in my life. Kiss the wrong man trusted the wrong friends but all of that is nothing compared to what i did with you it meant a lot to me too is martin right are the best things in life do they typically come from colossal lack of judgment yes i think in order to get some of the good things in life you have to take risks and sometimes risks involve you saying to your judgment or to your your better angels you know what we're gonna take a pause here and we're gonna try this and if we don't die then you know we knew it was a good idea I, I mean, I really like, I like how assured Martin is in his feelings and what he's doing because because he really has nothing to lose, right? He is a guy who is in prison in this psychiatric hospital, you know, criminal ward for being a serial killer. He's got nothing to lose, so he can be very de- uh, assured and definite in his feelings. And on the other side, you have Dr. Capshaw, who has a ton to lose, but is wrestling with her feelings. And I think these two are doing a really good job of him just being the stalwart of, come on, come on, we're going to have fun. Come on, let's just do it. I know what I feel. You know what you feel. Come on, come on. Like a real devil on her shoulder kind of thing. And I like that she's vacillating back and forth. You know, I like that it's. She's got a struggle. Yeah. Yeah. Get away from you. Disgust me. But then she's also in his room at nighttime, kissing him, looking for like looking for the suture scissors. You know, well, that... I come back to the fact that like you kill 23 people, but I'm here in your room. Like that's a very stark contrast. For sure. For sure. I mean, well, then this episode, you you have her restraining him because he's pushing her buttons. But then, you know, they have sex later on. Like she's she's struggling with her feelings. She's vacillating. She she feels very strongly in a couple of different ways that are pulling at each other. I really like that. I like that character struggle. I think Catherine Zeta-Jones is actually doing a great job of uh, playing it on the screen. Uh, Let me play this clip because I want to, this is the other big clip that I like these two talking about dignity. This electricity we have is what all great love affairs are made of. It's what true crime podcasts are made of. I'm not risking my life or my job or my heart. I was going to say dignity. 
things I could do to your dignity. over. We'll see about that. Oh, there's such a sinisterness, but also super sexual aspect to not only her saying Martin Whitley and then saying it's over, but him saying, you know, we'll see about that. It's so double meaning, double entendre charged. It's it's murderous, but it's also so, so sexual in such a fantastic way. There is such lust in that that small little clip that you played from what he said about like the way he said, oh, the things I could do to your dignity. I'm like, damn, I need a shower of the cold nature after that. For sure. <laughs> I saw someone saying online, I think maybe it was in the Reddit for the show, talking about how these two have no chemistry. And I what? just, sh- I shook my head. I was like, if you think these two have no chemistry, then you have never had chemistry with someone. You don't understand what chemistry is uh, between two people. The sexual, you can literally, it's it's like a little like right. test... It's like a little Tesla, like, uh, like electric cage, you know, where, where like the, uh, lightning is like visible outside of it as it bubbles around it. Like that's what these two on screen together are. It's, they were it's, on fire from the second that they were on screen together. Yeah. It, it, it's so, so hot. Like every single thing between the two of them, even when she's being repulsed by him, like that scene where she, the most breathy way possible talks about, you know, says his name, Martin Whitley. Like, Holy shit. Like, woof, I got I have to put a blanket over myself to watch this episode. It's it's ridiculous. <laughs> I'm sitting there fanning myself. I'm like, oh my lord, did, did it go up five degrees in here? Giving me the vapors, for sure. <laughs> I have to go find whoever this Reddit person is, be like, I'm sorry. We have to talk about chemistry. Let's give you a give you a lesson in this. But I do have a couple of questions about Martin's Vivian fantasy, which was amazing. Um, why were her eyes green? I don't know. The, what a weird. Did you notice it? I didn't notice it. Not until your notes. I didn't notice it. But the whole thing—that's not the kind of storytelling this show has ever done. The the quiet time day hallucination of where we mull things over and have uh, Catherine Zeta Jones in Chicago kind of uh, fantasies. Um, yeah. yeah, really interesting storytelling. Uh, the show it using here that really. It shocked me because it wasn't something that we've ever seen before. We've never seen Martin really have fantasies before. Certainly not like this. It no, was- other than like the Jessica when he breaks out of, you know, Claremont and, and you know, it tunnels into his office. Right, and- right. Which has like the which had the consistency of like a dream you would have. Right. Uh, you know, like like you know, that the idea that Claremont has a tunnel that connects to the Whitley house and he comes in like that had a very much like a dream quality to that fantasy. This was like a real waking dream kind of sexual fantasy about it down to where like she becomes all bloody face because and her hand is bloody because presumably she's eating some kind of body part like a cannibal. Yeah, I couldn't figure out why she was. all I, I think that's just the thing that kind of gets him going. I think that's. Oh, yeah, no, these. These are 100% like his his kinks, his turn-ons. Yeah, for, for sure. sure. I, I think all of that. But it, what a wild thing for to be in the middle of the episode while Malcolm is trying to... What was the last time Martin wasn't leaning uh, edge of the seat, leaning forward to Malcolm coming to Claremont to talk to him about a case? Malcolm has to like, you know, 
over here, over here, stop having your right. sexual fantasy in front of me to get him to engage. And even then, you know, I'm used to Martin making great pronouncements, great insights about Malcolm's cases in a way that makes me go, aha, he doesn't even present it that way. It's just kind of like, yeah, he's going to trigger and he's going to escalate now. And now that he's done it once, he's going to do it again because he can't keep a good man down. But really flat for Martin. Martin usually has a lot more panache and bravado when Malcolm is involved and he's and he's he's trying to work a case with his boy he's so disinterested in all of that that's the level to which he is ensorcelled by dr capshaw here is that he's he can't even get excited for malcolm being there bringing him a case even when just prior to the active fantasy happening martin is telling malcolm about the serial killers that you know practice on animals first and like this would be his moment to downplay a Dahmer, a Boston Strangler, right? He's he's throwing out these very big names in the in the serial killer world. And I feel like if Martin had had his wits about him, had his um his full focus on it, he he wouldn't have been so textbook. Whereas his mind was already headed towards this bloody sexual fantasy. And just Malcolm's reaction to it is like, this is just super gross. <laughs> yeah, it, it was it was like asking an encyclopedia information about serial killers versus the insight that you go to a Martin Whitley right. for. Yeah, he didn't give anything here that Malcolm didn't already know or be couldn't have gotten from uh you know Encarta online for Encarta, for serial killers, oh my you know, god for, for serial killers you know which is which is a great great detail for the show to use to show how very distracted Martin is you know never in his time at Claremont especially since he is reunited with Malcolm and worked cases together has he ever been distracted with Malcolm being coming around uh, so a, a great way of expressing how uh, taken up by Dr. Capshaw he is without hitting you over the head, sexual fantasy, you know, aside about how taken up and, and how much of his bandwidth is being taken up by Dr. Capshaw. I really liked it. As bizarre as it was, I really like I really like the story it told about where Martin was headspace was. And also just the fact that it's just another track of storytelling that we haven't seen before. And yes, it is shocking. And it's something that we haven't seen before, but for all the right reasons. So well done. So the Internet had been going wild with theories that Vivian was at Claremont in, in response to his question of why are you here? Um, because that she had been a surgeon fangirl, that she was uh, that there was some like uh, budding serial killer in her and or that she was some some groupie of the surgeon and was trying to get close to him. And in this episode tells us that they actually did have paths that crossed, but she didn't really. And while she was impressed at how good a surgeon he was and, and wanted to be like him from a professional standpoint, you know, I think it was 95. So three years before he's arrested for being the surgeon, it, it didn't have that same kind of fangirl reveal that I think people expected. Were you surprised by the Vivian backstory that we got here that that she thought she was going to be some hot shit in medical school? But when she actually started her residency, she actually fell apart. She couldn't handle it. She made reckless decisions and she was kind of disinvited from the boys club, the upper echelon boys club of, you know, thoracic surgeons. I wasn't surprised that they crossed paths. Um 
there's a lot of like cross-pollination, like in the medical field, there's a lot of guest lecturing and things like that. And somebody who is as renowned as Martin was at the time would have seen a lot of medical students just through his normal practice. So it, it didn't surprise me. Capshaw, Dr. Capshaw, she sounds to me like a New York girl. So like I imagine that it would all been sort of like kept in the family locally, so to speak. So the but also the fact that she opened up to him to say that, you know, she was deemed reckless and that she wasn't welcome in the surgeon's club. It was a little surprising that she allowed herself that level of vulnerability to let him see sort of the flaws that she has within herself and and maybe why she ends up throwing him out of the infirmary so often that she maybe maybe doesn't want to gain some of that criticism. Uh, there's a joke that um, surgeons, their ABCs of being a surgeon is abused, belittle, and criticized. So I think that she doesn't want to uh, in, invoke any of that from Martin. And I feel that her telling him this is something that we touched on a little bit earlier that like when you, you want to get into a relationship with somebody, you show them the good, the bad, and the ugly. So the fact that she she went down this path with him is her her way of opening up to him and maybe saying the unspoken that she's she's into him. And I don't know if it's necessarily, I don't think it's been a fangirl thing. I don't think she ended up at Claremont because of Martin. I feel that her recklessness, her reputation maybe just fostered the fact that she, she was not unemployable, but limited employment. Right. I, I agree with you. And I think even step going a step further, what we didn't hear tonight were some incidences of that recklessness. I think there's probably some uh, some poor choices on the operating table that backfired on her that her peers deemed unsound. I think I think I think when we learn more about her, if we learn more about her and her recklessness that actually led her to being here because there's some 20 years, 23 years between when he speaks at her medical school and where we are now. I, I think we're going to hear that there is like maybe a trail of bodies from her operating table that led her here. Not that she was a bad surgeon, but that maybe she went for the gusto and it backfired on her in a way that it never seems to backfire for Martin, that Martin can do outrageous surgery things. And it always seems to work for him. And when you listen to him tell tales from his time as being an actual surgeon, not the surgeon, he always came out on the other side, you know, no matter how irreverent his approach was to the surgery. It seems like when she tried the same thing, maybe it didn't work out for her. And so that's how she winds up employed at Claremont, whereas his ego led him to becoming a serial killer imprisoned at Claremont. Not reckless, but both making decisions, trying to show that they were the best that led them on two separate paths, but wound them up at the same place together, almost like almost like kindred spirits themselves. I think she was also probably trying to jump the gun. Like you need the experience, you need time and experience in order to get to the point where Martin was or any good surgeon. You you do have to kind of, you know, go through that school of hard knocks. I, she was maybe trying to circumvent that a little bit and it backfired on her. I like that too, uh, that she was trying to take shortcuts, which also definitely goes with the uh, personality of recklessness. And it definitely goes with the kind of personality of someone who can be taken in and, and fall in love or fall in lust with a Martin Whitley, maybe become the Bonnie to his Clyde, like I'm, like I'm convinced is going to happen and help him break out of the prison. I, I think there's a really short trip between being a reckless person who wants to take shortcuts in a profession that requires you 
putting paying your dues over a long period of time and being being an enabler of Martin and whatever Martin's plans are. I think I think that's a really short trip personality wise. So I'm excited to see where they go. Again, I'm really excited where we go with this in the final four episodes in this storyline because it escalated so quickly, but in a way that I find totally believable. Like I I buy it. I get there because I think their chemistry is so strong. You know, when you know, you know. And I think these two just smelled it on each other that they knew from the get go. Do you think having Martin restrained was part of Vivian's plan to get him all alone in the infirmary? I don't. I like that idea. I, I see where you're going with that idea. I think her having him restrained was just part of this struggle she has with him, where she pushes him away and then pulls him close and then pushes him away again, because I think she is struggling with her emotions. And he's being a right dick to her. He deserved getting restrained down. I don't know. There's like a hint of a smile, you know. Well, I think, well, I think, well, I think part of this is I think she's a little bit of a masochist. I think she is someone who's also into a little bit of bondage. I think she's someone who likes to tie up their partner in, you know, all four limbs to a to a bedpost and have their way kind of thing I, I think she's a little bit into that a little bit of the dominatrix i think is part of her personality and 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 part of her feelings about control i think her ideas about control and being in power are very much wrapped up in her sexuality so when she smiles with him being like uh, restrained down i think there's probably a little bit of that that's sexually exciting for her you know that's what gets maybe her, uh, her motor going later on that leads to them having some really quick sex in the infirmary so i think martin was definitely gonna motor boat <laughs> I mean, god bless him god bless him especially i mean i guess she does take his restraints off but i'm kind of surprised that she removes his restraints there's a little bit of her of the profile i have for her where she keeps him restrained and you know frees him uh the body parts that need to be working kind of you know takes what she wants from him while he's restrained down not that he wouldn't be into it but just again a little bit of that power play and a little bit of the dominatrix aspect of it a little bit of a follow-up then so Martin is definitely a man who gets his passions inflamed with strong women. So did it surprise you that he actually tries to get Vivian to then forget about him? I did because it seemed really sincere to me. It didn't seem like a play to me. It seemed like Martin actually, I think this is part of the growth cycle that we've seen for Martin. Martin actually not being selfish here. I think he is trying. I think he cares enough about her already that he doesn't necessarily want to make the same mistakes like he maybe did with Jessica. Uh, I because I, I didn't think it was a ploy. I really didn't. I really think it was a sincere. I'm only good for nightmares, not for what you deserve. But of course, that only turns her on more because she comes back with that great line of you have no idea what I dream about. <sighs> I mean, Lord, these let these two just have sex. They need to. I mean, just the world needs them to have sex at this point, I feel like. So, uh, yeah, no, I, I, I how about you? I mean, I, yeah, I think it was really sincere. Uh, ploy, which it did surprise me, but I think it was a great testament to how he feels about her now. He definitely has these moments. He's had these moments with Jessica, too. Maybe not so candid where he's, you know, telling her to forget about him. He's just the stuff of nightmares. But since we've been running with this crowd for 29 episodes now, I feel that he's been this kind of vulnerable, sensitive person a time or two with Jessica. I'm not exactly recalling. She was in Claremont with him and he was talking to her. But he's got, yeah, he's definitely got this side of him that's just like, you know, reality sets in. It's like, 
I'm in here, you have a life and I have no future. So I like the fact that he was as honest as he could be with her, which only seemed to inflame her her more in a good way. Like he, he definitely aroused her passions by saying that. So, um, so I'm glad that this is Martin's arc, that he's being a little bit more self-aware that, that he may not be the best fit for somebody who is not within the walls of Claremont 24 seven, like he is. Uh, yeah, I think that's a good take. Uh, and I think I definitely agree with it. I want to keep Gil and Jessica, to the end of the episode for the wrap-up since we don't have an Idris's Corner. So with that, I think we're pretty much done with this episode breakdown. So we should get to our interview with Keiko Agena, which I hope you guys stick around and listen to. It's fantastic. And it's coming up right now. When Mr. July found the videos is... Oh, sorry, that is a... That's another member. See, there are hundreds of us all around the world. We all have aliases. I, I go by Kama Sutures. It's a, it's a double entendre because, you know, I'm always sewing up bodies and I like sex. <laughs> Joining us tonight, back on the Surgeon Files for the <laughs> second time, Kama Sutures herself, Keiko Legena. How are you doing? Oh, yeah. Hi, I'm feeling fabulous. How are you guys? Uh, good, good. Happier now that you're here with us. Uh, let's get right. Let's get right into that scene. Talk to us about how hard it is to to keep from breaking when you deliver those kinds of scenes. Like Frank Hartz looked like he was really hard, like trying hard to keep it together. Listening to you talk about sewing up bodies and that you like sex. Uh, how do you deliver those with <laughs> such a good straight face? Or is that a lot of takes uh, to get that? I actually I don't break up so much from what uh, when I say things because I know that Adrisa is so serious about it, and so I think that. In my mind, I just play the substitution for something else. So I feel like my headspace is very serious. I think um, when Frank, I forget what the what what he said in the morgue once was it was the one time where I lost it and I couldn't I couldn't uh, get through what I was saying with the straight face. He's so good for delivering like fan exposition, like like she's some freaky yeah. deaky, you know, something like that, <laughs> yeah. like kind of under his breath. It's so good. It's so good. Um, I, I really want to thank you for coming back. And I feel like a lot has happened to Adresa since we last saw her and last, well, since we last spoke to you at the end of episode three, Alma Mater. The main thing is I feel like Adresa has been increasingly overt in expressing her Malcolm crush. Yes. Is that an accurate read that you have also for her this season that she's grown much more bold? Yeah, I think it's um, I think much more is getting past the filter. Not that she has a filter, but uh, I think more and more just it ha- is coming out. <laughs> it's probably not good, um, but we'll you know, we'll see like this last episode is I think things have shifted a little bit because of the, the dynamics feel like they're shifting a little bit. But I'm sh- I know that certainly episodes leading up to this, she's really out there in her um, affections for Malcolm. Yeah, I mean, when yeah. she shows up in the full-blown evening gown at the end of Face yeah. Value, yeah, yeah, it seemed almost like she was maybe taking mixed signals in the very wrong way from him. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, so. I, I do like that you keep such a nice outfit in your locker, though, at work, though. That's great. Right? Or did she take the lunch break to kind of go <laughs> shopping, which is, I feel might be... I don't know where the morgue is located, but she might have uh, she might have gone and uh, did a little shopping at lunch. I think well, that's fantastic. Well, she was pretty uh, enterprising, able to get roses and an evening dress at the right? same time. Yeah, yeah. She's, she's fast. 
<laughs> Always prepared. Following from face value, we started to worry that maybe Idrisa was coming a little bit unglued. Yeah. Maybe inching into like some fatal attraction territory. <laughs> Is this an aspect of Idrisa that you see in her character becoming like a little murdery, a little stabby? A little murdery and a little stabby. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that's my, my true crimeisms coming out. <laughs> Those are technical uh, terms. <laughs> you know, what's interesting is that I feel like maybe she's not as rule-abiding as maybe I read her as being when we did the pilot. I think that as episodes have come out, she has a softer understanding of the law, maybe, than I do. So who knows where that road leads? I mean, she's a very intense person, so there's always a little bit of danger there with someone like that, I think. What do you think? I don't know. I love that interpretation that, you, you know, you, your initial take on her was that she was so law abiding and now you're maybe seeing her in a little bit of a shade of gray. Yeah. This episode was pretty extraordinary in, in getting insight into Adresa. And I just loved how much detail that we got. So, yeah, I mean, the fact that she's in this, uh, you know, online digital gumshoe online vigilante group, I, I, I like the fact that she is a little bit of a, a ball buster, a rule breaker. Yeah. I think it's consistent with her, though. Like, I definitely see this as being Idris's after hours activity. Yeah. I bought it completely. Yeah. I had so much fun doing it. I mean, as soon as I read the script, I thought, wow, can't I can't wait to do it. And everybody was so, so fun to play with. <laughs> at, uh, at, at the TCA virtual panel in the beginning of March, you, you mentioned that the 209 was going to be an Idrisa centric episode and, and you seemed, you seemed very excited about it. One of the things I liked about tonight was how much backstory we got. I mean, this is episode nine or 20. So in 29 episodes, I think we, this is by far the deepest we've gone into your character. And I want to play this clip because I think in just a few well executed and sincerely delivered lines, I think you really peeled back an onion on her. Let's listen to this real quick. Growing up, my parents used to take me on their research trips. I was six years old when I accidentally played with a voodoo doll. And um, like a year later, I saw my first cadaver. The two are unrelated, I think. One is that when it came to making friends, I never really fit in. But then I found the Killabusters and, you know, they're a bunch of misfits. But together we're a family. There's such a sweetness there and listening to Idrisa talk about the Killabusters and that they are a group of misfits, but they also fill a family role for her. Does Idrisa yeah. get anywhere near the same family feeling from Malcolm and the rest of the major crimes team? Does she badly need that kind of family validation from them? Or is your understanding now after having done this episode that the Killabusters really is that family support and that's enough for her? You know, it's interesting when I read the script, I kind of I asked that question of myself, too. <laughs> uh, I think there's a part of Idrisa that really, really, really wants nothing more than the major crimes people and Malcolm, especially to really see her and respect her. And I think that's like I love it because that I think that it's funny and uh, charming and sweet and heartbreaking and all of that stuff. Um, but she never quite gets the validation that she wants or she, right. she's never comfortable let's say she does definitely gets validation in that i think that they respect her work for sure and like her uh but i think she's more this this is a nice way to seize a place where 
she feels more comfortable and she doesn't have to try to get respect from people in a lot of ways it's it's very high school almost because she's like the cool one of the killabustus group in a lot of ways and yet is a, a little bit of a misfit outsider in the major crimes group and so it's almost like you're sitting at the one lunch table and you have your friends and you're kind of like a big fish in that pond yeah but you're staring across the lunchroom and wishing you were maybe sitting at that table with that other group of friends that that was like the yeah. vibe i took a little bit from it yeah absolutely and there's a there's a line there were, we, the writing is so great but there's a lot of it and so there are a lot of things that get cut in every episode and one of the lines that got cut in this one was um i'm like their malcolm bright so in the interrogation scene when blaze uh, is explaining who i am to their group he says a line that actually gets moved to another area of the script later on where he says that you're like a like a it's like meeting a celebrity and i explained to to um the real malcolm bright that i'm that they look at like they look to me like i'm their malcolm bright Oh, but that's important, though. I mean, that that's an important yeah. thing. And and it's interesting because Malcolm probably also I would love to see that interaction because Malcolm probably rejects the idea that he's Malcolm Bright in that kind of way. You know, yes, just, exactly. Yeah. It's one of the things I like about Idris and Malcolm is that they have they are so similar in so many ways and yeah. how they don't really see how other people perceive them. Oh, and another thing that got cut. I don't even know if I'm supposed to talk about things that get cut, but eh, go um, for it. <laughs> But there's another line where in that after that clip that you played, actually, there's a line in between within that clip that you played that got cut where Malcolm says people like us were not meant to fit in before. Uh, I think we're talking about about um, friends and not having friends. Right. So after talking about not having friends to where I talk about the killabusters being like a family. I love that because that was also a very that was a very defining aspect, I think, of your relationship with Malcolm in season one, especially where there was a lot of interaction. Both of you, because he was still trying to fit into the major crimes team, he was yeah. still getting trying to get JT and Danny to like him and accept him. And they yeah. really saw him as an outsider. So, yeah, that uh, there was a lot of that season one vibe in that in that kind of cut scene. I like that. Yeah, I hope that people feel this and see this, too, is that I think that uh, a parallel in this episode of when he's talking talking about family will reject you once you know the truth when he's actually talking to um the uh, the killer that he's talking about himself in in not being accepted by major crimes that he's that his family the major crimes family will reject him as soon as you know as soon as they find out the truth about what he's hiding so there's a moment where Gil asks why Adresa didn't mention this earlier, meaning her work with the Killabusters on investigating the vulture. But it made me wonder, is there an aspect of the Killabusters that made Adresa feel embarrassed for the team to know about or worry that Malcolm <laughs> especially and the team would be teasing her? Oh, totally. Oh, for sure. I think for her, she took it so she takes it so seriously. But, you know, it's like dressing up like a superhero and then you're around superheroes you're embarrassed to admit how much you you want to do what they do in a way. And I know she, she's part of the team that Major Crimes is able to do what they do, but there's there's part of her that wants more. And yeah, it's, it's definitely something she, did, she didn't necessarily want them. She didn't, she just thought she, she, she didn't want them to tease her about it. If we're talking about high school stuff, you know, she didn't want to show that maybe. No matter how old we get, we never really leave high school. Right? In, it's in true. The social, it changes. The, the but there was, I mean, there was also this, this show of pride as well. But then when she, you know, looked around the room, she was like, oh, wait, yeah, it's them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, I think you captured that, you know, I think you captured that, that aspect really well with, uh, okay. with the superhero notion. Yeah. 
tonight's episode introduced us to Blaze, played by the wonderful Michael Luaye. Uh, and he's a tall, broad-shouldered, firefighting man, possibly this new love interest okay. for Drisa. Physically, he's literally as different as can be from Malcolm Bright. So yeah. I, I found myself all episode talking, you know, thinking to myself, like, what is Adrisa's type? I'm thrown for a loop. Is, is it really about the size of their brain more than anything else that that's uh, drawing her to these guys? Yeah, I think it's brain in air quotes. <laughs> I, that, that's really that's really for Keiko to interpret as she will. I'm just tossing it out there, ladies. I'm just tossing it out there. I think Adresa probably has a very wide type. I, I'm pretty sure if you looked at the type of people that she has been interested in, they would be varied. I think that the what attracts her about Malcolm is really specific. I think for her, it's very much about what he's able to do. When I thought about this character originally, I think part of the reasons why she's so obsessed with him is it's like watching someone who is able to paint a, a master painting and you're, you want to do that, but you're only able to do finger paints. You know, like Adresa knows certain things and she loves knowledge, but when she watches Malcolm do what he does or think the way he does, it's it's like magic to her and it's beautiful. And so I think that's part of her obsession with him. And I think with uh, with Blaze, it's something I think it's something completely different for her. I think it's I, I think it's his heart and his sweetness. And that's I think why she, her relation, how she reacts to him is so different. She she's much more relaxed about him uh, around him. Because there's a there's a sweetness and a and a and a trust mm. almost I think. Michael was in Hamilton uh, a couple of years ago, and so I've been really trying hard to figure out how to work in like a you know she's looking for a mind at work work. I was well, really <laughs> I was trying hard to figure out how to get that in there somehow. So. You know, this is the first time we've really pulled back the curtain on her having a love life. It, and because you're awesome or because Adrice is awesome and you saved his life at the end of the episode and he's alive. It, can we expect to hear more about a relationship between Adrisa and Blaze? Is that something that is going to come up maybe in the final couple episodes of the season? I don't. Well, I know what. <laughs> like, how do I say this? Um, I, he doesn't come back in this season but i would love for you know for for michael to come back in season three it would be great i think the window for that is definitely yes the d window for that is definitely open all right so 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 the door is not closed anyway no, there there, so. there may be some exploration with that chemistry are you kidding me Girlfriend, you know, you're talking to me i don't even i mean you don't have to even mention it uh did, did you know michael beforehand because you guys did really had a great chemistry together and either way what was it like to work with him i'm always curious when guest stars come into an episode of an established show uh talk to us a little bit about that yeah i did not and we had to film most of this in the complete reverse order so we shot that trailer scene first and the first thing up of the day and basically was like hello yes my name is Keiko Michael let's let's we have 10 minutes to like you know as we're getting our tea to try to bond really quickly because we have to <laughs> film this like you are almost dying and I have and we've shared this whole episode together and then the crime scene the original crime scene was shot on the last day it was just the way scheduling happened. So a lot of these things were out of order. But thank goodness Michael is who he is because he made it so easy to create that trust. And this is another thing. I don't even know if I'm supposed to be talking about it. But the the scene that uh, that after date scene, that was mm -hmm. an added scene that wasn't in. There were a couple of things that weren't in the original script. And that was added at the very. So we did that at, at like an add on at the very end. 
Oh, I love that. I love that. See, that's a sign of good chemistry. They're like, let's <laughs> let's, let's go a little bit deeper here. Also, <laughs> hi, I'm Keiko. Now take off your shirt. You know, oh, right. <laughs> very funny. Right. Very funny. So, Keiko, going back to face value, that episode where Malcolm asks Adresa to run the blood that was on the the shirt that he brought her. Yes. Very um, undercover kind of thing. Did Adresa or did you did you take that as Malcolm taking advantage of her, maybe playing on her affections a little? It bothered me so much. Oh, yeah, I know. I think that was a hard episode. It's one of those things where we're playing with this idea and this tension between the two of them. And it's not always easy to get it right. (laughs) That episode, I think there was a little bit of, it was harder to, to maintain the the balance of that. Um, I think as as like, as we were speaking about earlier, you're a year and a half into this kind of relationship and the, and more things are said and that, and so you're starting to navigate into territory where it's, you're, you're crossing, you're starting to cross different lines at different points. So I, I, I know that I didn't take it as being taken advantage of as an actor or, or Dresa either, but I do know that the episode on the whole is a little bit, it's, it's hard. It's hard to find that balance. I think what do you, so did it really bother you? <laughs> it did only because just knowing that Idrissa was going to go, oh, well, of course, of course I'll run that for you. And then when he shows up to the lab to drop it off and she'd gone through all of this, this work, obviously, you know, it's like, you know, saying it's a date and, and things like that. And just how crestfallen Idrissa looks when, you know, it really is a bloodstained shirt sample. Yeah. Uh, it was just, it was just one of those things. It was just like, oh, and you talked about the complexity of their relationship. So yeah, when you have this obvious, you know, situation with a person and you need to get something out because he's desperate, right? He's desperate for a sister. It's not outside the realm of possibility, but it, it didn't make me upset about Malcolm or, or anything like that. But it was just like, oh, you went there. Like you used, you used her, you know, like the give an inch, take a mile kind of a thing. Like oh. that's the way I felt about it. Oh, you know, it's it's funny because I guess I, I always... I'm mostly looking at it from her per, her perspective and how I thought about it. And I know that this isn't how a lot of people viewed it, but it's maybe just the way that I think of it and the way I read it is that I always thought that it wasn't so much that she wanted to like go to dinner with him or something like that. It's like, you know how when you go, when you want to, when you're going to do a study group with someone, like mm-hmm. someone's going to come over to study, but you're really into them. Right. And so you like dress a certain way and you like, smell a certain way and you think of like what kind of snacks you're going to have. Right. You, you put like the, the colored scarf over the light, right? <laughs> yeah. You like think about that stuff. And I, to me, that's what Adresa was doing. It's just that Adresa does everything at a thousand percent. And so her like putting on the cute sweater, cause the boys coming, coming over to study looks like that, you know, she, she, um, <laughs> she's not a subtle person. Um, <laughs> which is why we love her yeah and i think that i might have been the only one who who thought this way to me it's not it was never a bad thing that he asked her to to run this sample to me it was like oh my god malcolm trusts me with this thing that other people don't know about he needs me huge like that to her that was like someone coming over and telling me 
a secret. Like now we have a secret together. And that was, and so to work with him is what she gets excited about anyway. But I might've been the only person that really saw it that way. Cause I know a lot of people were, were felt a little strange about that scene when it came, kind of came out. I, I really like that insight because it, it is looking into Idrissa's psyche saying that like, I just, I want to help you and this is our secret. So it's something special and shared. So from Idrissa's point of view, that does make sense as well. Yeah. I, I mean, that's how I saw it. <laughs> I like it. Uh, Keiko, I know we're running out of time. I know you're on a tight uh, schedule today. Uh, just oh, yeah. as, as, as we're heading to wrap up, you know, this was a night of first for Adresa stands. Uh, you know, we got to see a glimpse in your private life. We got to see a glimpse of your love life. We got to see your apartment and know where your bedroom is located now. <laughs> You know, you and we got to see Adresa go inside Malcolm's apartment for the first time and get the glimpse of the murder wall. I mean, really big stuff for Adresa fans. As we head to the end of episode, uh, season two and, you know, season three hopes are on the horizon. What's something that you'd like the show to delve into and for all of us to find out about Adresa that hasn't been addressed? When you, when you sit there and think, what what is something that we need to know about her that we haven't learned yet? Oh, you mean in, in the in a in another season? Yeah, in like a yeah. Yeah, down the road what what is something that you still want to explore with her oh well this is this is a dicey thing actually because i already have some pretty firm ideas about uh, adresa's family life i'm pretty invested in what i think it is and so so i definitely would love for people to see her family life, but it's also, I really want people to see her family life in the way that I've written it in my own mind. So I don't know, you know, it could be even worse if it doesn't necessarily match up, but I think that she has had, I mean, we mention it just a tad in this episode, but there's a lot that she covers up. And so I think that if we really were to get into it, I think there's a lot there that if we really peeled it apart would be pretty interesting actually if we, you know if we had the time we would be asking you what you were doing with voodoo dolls as a six-year-old for yes. sure oh yeah, yeah. absolutely yeah we're gonna have we're gonna have to take this to a dm or something and talk about it offline <laughs> <laughs> keiko we really want to thank you for coming back on the show with us it's always a pleasure to talk to you uh where can people find you online they can follow me everywhere at at keiko Gena because my name is pretty different so it's K-E-I-K-O-A-G-E-N-A. We were talking to Frank. We were talking to Frank Hartz last week. He was talking about how someone squatted on Frank Hartz. And so that's why he has to use Frank Hartz truly. Oh, uh, oh got I, it. Yeah. I know. Yeah. I, I didn't tell him that was me. But uh, please don't <laughs> please don't mention it to him. All right. I'll keep it a secret. See, now we have a secret, Mike. See, See? That that's right. Uh, and just one final question, Keiko. Uh, yeah. Are there any projects that we should be aware of? Any else, anything else you're working on? I think this is... This is it for right uh, for right now that I can talk about. Yeah, just keep Ooh, on. I like that. I like the dot dot uh-huh. dot. Ooh. The door is left open here. The, all like that I can talk about. Oh, yes. oh laying that bait out there. All right, Keiko. Thanks so much for joining us here on the Search of Files, okay. and uh, hopefully we'll have you back again soon. Okay. Bye. Thanks. Bye.
All right, guys, I just want to give another thank you to Keiko for being so charitable with her time. She was on a really tight uh, time frame today and still stayed with us longer than she had to. I think this episode gives a really good look into who Adresa is. And I think talking to Keiko helped flesh that out even more. I think for any of the Adresa stands out there, listen to that interview, listen to it again, and then watch the episode again. And I think it'll help inform what the show is doing with her. Her insights were just so, so amazing to, to the questions that we had about Adresa and her her origin and her backstory. So definitely worth the listen. Yeah, really great interpretations. And she has a real, she's really, I mean, she says this, but she is really invested in uh, Adresa Tanaka as a character. And it comes through when you hear her talk about her because not all actors are. Some actors are just like, listen, I'm here because the PR people say I have to, you know, give you an interview and talk about this, but I don't really care about this role at all. It happens. It happens so frequently. And it's always a little bit heartbreaking if you care about the character and the actor that plays them doesn't. But across the board, I find the cast of Prodigal Son really do care about these characters that they're portraying and uh, maybe no more so than Keiko. So uh, so it was great. It was great to talk to her again and really dive deep into this episode. Uh, before we wrap up and say goodbye, I want to address Gil and Jessica because this episode brings them back together for the first time, really since the beginning, when Danny scares maybe Gil off with, you know, the Whitleys are cursed and Jessica overhears that and then eventually breaks up with Gil. They really haven't been around each other, not since the Alma Mater episode where Jessica shows up at the school because she's on the board. I think that may have been one of the last directions these two even had. Are you surprised that they got back together in this episode or seemingly got back together in this episode? Are you surprised that it was Malcolm who did the matchmaking? I'm not surprised that they got back together. This has been a very long relationship, friendship, confidant, therapist, protector. There's so many adjectives that you can use to describe this relationship that has evolved over this 25-year period that there are some very deep-seated feelings between these two. And Gil, Gil needed to get over his hurt. Jessica needed to get over her hurt as well. I like that Malcolm was the one to suggest that this, you know, this happen um, through through the surgeon files, right through the resurrection of those. You know, they both kind of set aside their pride. They said some things that were pretty hard to each other earlier this season. You know, Jessica overhearing that the Whitleys are cursed and he didn't deny it. You know, that's a really hard thing to hear. And it's a hard thing to reconcile. So I, I think that they've had enough time to to get over their their emotional hurtness or their emotional feelings, basically come to this mutual agreement that their friendship and whatever else comes of it is more important than being upset and being sort of on the outside of their friendship. There's a lot to be said about people who have, and I've talked about this, about people who have like a shared past, a shared trauma, whereas these two have had the most unique of traumas, um, Gil almost being the 24th victim of the surgeon and Jessica being married to a serial killer. There's there's a lot that bonds these two. So I like the fact that they're coming back together because they, they understand each other on a level that I think, quote unquote, normal people just cannot understand. I am sitting here wondering this entire plot line and ever since it was it came up in her conversation with Birdie about writing the book has made me really wonder if 
Jessica and by extension, Malcolm, Gil, Martin, Ainsley, really everyone on the show that we care about. Uh, maybe Dreesa doesn't really have a dog in a fight, but I'm curious if they're all ready for her literally to reopen the surgeon files and revisit these darkest parts of her history, because in the same way, we really haven't gotten a lot of backstory on so many of these characters that we still feel like we know really well. This is a really dark time for Jessica and what she's lived through. And we've heard the stories of people shunning her. And we've heard the stories of, you know, like the way Gil explains tonight, like the, everyone thought she must have known. How could you not know when your husband is a serial killer of 23 people, 23 people that we know about? Uh, so I, I hope we get a lot of flashbacks to that time because I think it'll go a long way of humanizing Jessica because there's still a lot of people that don't like Jessica because of the the hardness of the character. But I think it's because they don't have an appreciation for really what she's been through and what she has suffered through. You know, Malcolm was a kid. Yes, and he faced trauma and it has affected his life and fucked him up in a, in a really royal way. But Jessica was a full grown adult married to this monster that she didn't know was a monster. That's a whole aspect of trauma that the show has not really gone into in a, in a way and certainly not gone into a way to really make Jessica a sympathetic figure or at least not enough. And so I'm hoping that the storyline has that effect and it makes people stop and really appreciate Jessica in a new kind of way. That's my hope. Uh, but who knows? The show will end up turning out that she actually killed more people than Martin or something. Who knows? <laughs> well, I, you know, I was thinking about this and I, I was wondering, too, about the the mental toll that this was going to take on Jessica Ainsley malcolm martin to an extent because now all the stuff will be turned up and there'll be more rage directed at him uh even guilt to a certain extent turning this stuff up after so long what would be the point and that's what i was kind of coming back to I'm like why does she want to go through with this is it really just about a payday for a book does she really care about people's opinions about her i mean i i kind of get the feeling that in 25 years she's really kind of honed this um this mentality that you know Love me, hate me. I don't care. I'm here. Oh, but I disagree with that. I think I think she cares very deeply. And I think that's what Malcolm is trying to say to her, that you've lived with people saying the worst things about you for so long. I don't I think Jessica still feels every sling and every arrow very deeply. I think I think there's a little bit of a money aspect to here because of Birdie and the hole that Birdie put them into uh with making the deal but i think there's a i think there's a catharsis that jessica is hoping to get out of this by telling her side of the story and by making the 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 world of prodigal son as well as some of the fans that really have never given jessica a fair shake to to let them in on what she went through because i think she still feels it very deeply every time there's a story i think that's all facade i think that's all you know, women put a, a facade on kind of expectation uh, that she that she does for the public. Um, I think she feels very deeply every nasty word said about her. Well, that's where I think that, you know, writing the book will give will give her side of the story without objection, without the the light of page six on it and giving her this this ability to to maybe reconnect like you said catharsis and, I, and that's the word like i kind of had in my notes as well that she's going to find not necessarily redemption but she's going to find some supporters i think on the other side of it and i think i think you're right i think if she sways a few hearts and minds i think that'll go a long way to repairing her ego which i think she just kind of holds up as a very thin plate of glass 
All right, prodigies, that brings us to the end of our discussion for this episode. The Killa Bustas. Uh, I want to send another big thank you to Keiko Agena for joining us today and being so good with her time. I want to thank you guys for listening and for promoting the show and talking about it. Uh, we would always love to hear even more comments from you uh, at Apple Podcasts or a Pod Clubhouse or on the message boards or on Facebook. Um, there's there's some great Prodigal Son communities out there so we'd love to hear from you guys next week's episode sheila is called exit strategy do you want to hear what the episode synopsis is for that please all right well this is a spoiler warning for i know there's some people that consider published episode descriptions spoiler warnings so if you're one of those people and you don't want to hear what exit strategy is about cover your ears three two one don't yell at me now okay exit strategy as Malcolm distances himself from Martin, Jessica does the opposite, diving headfirst into the past for the sake of her tell-all book. Meanwhile, Martin is desperate to get in touch with his son ahead of his imminent plans, as Dr. Vivian Capshaw grows increasingly suspicious. Meanwhile, the NYPD investigates a crime of passion. Exit strategy. I, it oh, sound, sounds like oh we're going to get some, yeah, sounds like we're gonna get some movement in Martin breaking the hell out of Claremont. Huh? Eminent plans and Dr. Capshaw is increasingly suspicious. Oh, my Lord. Uh, exit strategy, indeed. Mm-hmm. I'm, seeing a big, I'm seeing a big exit sign in front of my face right now. Right. <laughs> Thank you guys for listening. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the Surgeon Files, your unofficially official Prodigal Son podcast at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you could leave us a five-star rating, that would be fantastic so that we don't have to sing creepy spirituals to you in elevators until you do. Don't make us do that. We don't want to. Don't make us go fry or peed on you. But how great was it to hear his voice singing? Uh, I love Christian Borley's voice so, so much. Makes me always happy. Mike, I'm going to go back a second. We are no longer the unofficial official podcast. They ah. said our... They, no, we're official. You're so funny. I mean, the, <laughs> the show does say you need the Surgeon Files. And so uh, take that advice. Leave us a five-star review. And uh, thanks for listening. And we'll talk to you next week. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.